This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Did you read with Tim Montgomery? Well, what a special day, Tuesday the 15th of July 2014, is because you've not just had one podcast, but two, because we've gathered an elite team of Times commentators to reflect on what has been a very significant, substantial and surprising reshuffle. And I'm grateful to be joined by Phil Webster, Phil Collins and Jill Sherman. Phil, Phil and Jill. And I'm going to ask this great gathering three big questions. First of all, do we still have a reforming government? Has Cameron delivered on his promise to produce a more female-friendly government? And finally, has the government moved in a significant Eurosceptic direction? Phil Collins, can I start with you on this question of reform? I think the main leader in Wednesday's Times is going to be answering this question. You're the chief leader writer. What is the leader going to say? Well, essentially, he's going to say that the loss of Michael Gove from education really deprives the government of one of its prime purposes. You think, what is a government for? One of its purposes has been to cut the deficit, and that is slowly, gradually being done. But that's not enough to define a government. You have to have a purpose. And Michael Gove, whether you like it or not, has definitely had drive and purpose at the Department for Education. So to remove him from that, and to replace him with Nicky Morgan about whose views on education we know nothing, mm. and it appears nobody knows anything, is a signal to the educational establishment that they can take a breather and stop. And I think that's a real error. Now, uh, you've got across to social media, we've had teacher representatives and the, the blob, as Michael Gove used to call it, rejoicing. That's right. Earlier on the Times, on the, the website, we were leading uh, on this story. And the first words of, on the Times website were, the National Union of Teachers were delighted that... Now, that is not a good headline. That's not a good headline. Now, I understand, in a sense, why the government has taken the view that they wanted to remove Michael Gove. I can absolutely imagine sitting there with Linton Crosby's poll data that looks at Mr. Gove is toxic and thinking we've got all these marginals where there's lots of teachers. Do you think we could do something about it? I'll tell you how bad the focus groups were on Michael Gove. Apparently, they were almost as bad as they are on Ed Miliband. I, I find that very hard to believe, <laughs> but I'll take your word for it. But, so I can understand that reasoning. However, 
you've got to separate the two decisions. You've then got to put in someone who signals to the world that you'll get real yeah. continuity in policy. And uh, Liz Truss was one person who might have done that if you wanted a, a Tory to do it. My own slightly counterintuitive thought would have been that David Laws, who's the junior minister in the department, or a mm. Liberal Democrat, would have been a very clever Yeah, he would have been more of an heir to that. But what you've got now thing. instead is an absolute clear signal about a, of a break in the reform programme. And that's all that great big hierarchies ever need. Yeah. They don't need much to think, well, let's just not carry it out. There's a real error you make in politics to suppose that you are the people in charge of implementing policy. Every day, people who work in the area are in fact implementing policy. And if they get a sense that your, your foot isn't right down on the floor, they'll stop. Yeah. And that's what will happen now. I don't know whether this worries you, Phil, but I think I agree with every word you have just said. Oh, dear. Maybe we'll have to uh, edit this later. (laughs) (laughs) Jill Sherman, if Phil is right and education reform is disappointing, Francis Maud is still in place. And that's another area of important government reform and lots of civil servants across Whitehall. Your brief for The Times won't be happy at Maud's survival. No, I think a lot of them won't be happy at all. And there's been a whole string of announcements today which have been slightly overshadowed by the rest of the reshuffle concerning Whitehall, which I think are very interesting for the next parliament. The most significant thing is the Prime Minister has announced that he's going to bring in a chief executive who's going to run the civil service reforms. And this is to try and get round this sort of endless debate within Whitehall about how you can make civil service more efficient, how you can make them do what ministers want them to do, which successive prime ministers have always been very frustrated with. Tony Blair, the scars on my back. Mm. David Cameron himself has also talked about the frustrations with civil servants. So the idea is to bring in a chief executive from the private sector, is my understanding, who will be paid about £200,000, which may not be enough to attract the best from the private sector, but, you know, that's all we can pay them in the civil service these days. And they will be responsible for driving through the civil service reforms, which will include bringing in more efficiencies in the Cabinet Office and across Whitehall in terms of making money through supplies and IT, etc. And perhaps more importantly, I think there'll be a shift towards politicising the civil service. So you meet more political appointments alongside Cabinet Ministers? Because I think they've been trying to introduce this thing called extended ministerial offices, which is the idea of bringing in experts from outside And this hasn't taken off at all because the civil servants have really frustrated this by introducing sort of different um, job titles within these cabinets, which ministers aren't at all keen on. So that hasn't taken off. And I think Maud and the Prime Minister are very frustrated about that. So they all see this as a chance of sort of bringing in a new broom to completely sweep aside the frustrations of the civil service and try and get a much more political type of civil service, not as far as the US, where, you know, administrations change every every time there's a new president, but a slightly more political machine. This may sound slightly academic to some of our, our listeners, but this is about whether Whitehall can implement what governments say in their manifestos. It matters a lot. And Francis Maud will argue, Nick Herbert will argue, who's trying to set up a sort of reformist group from outside Whitehall, is that if this doesn't happen, almost nothing else will happen that a, that a government wants. And 
is your understanding that the Liberal Democrats are on board this reform agenda as, as well, or is this something just being driven by Cameron and Maud and Osborne? I, I had very little notice of what they announced today, so I don't know how much the Lib Dems are on board. Um, I, they all share, all the three main parties share this frustration with the civil service. Labour does as well. Yeah, Phil they Collins m- nodding. Yeah. I, may, I think it's impossible well to have spent it. any time in government as I have and not feel that frustration. So I, I think this, I mean, to cast a slightly less gloomy aspect on, on this and the education, I think this is good news. Mm. Francis Moore has been very tenacious in what he's wanted to do. For that reason, he's excited all sorts of opposition within the civil service who are brilliant at seeing things off, as Jill was saying a moment ago. He's stuck to his guns. He's still there. And I hope they manage to succeed. And the removal of Kerslake today is another sign that, in this area at least, they're prepared to carry on trying to reform. Because your view, Phil Webster, is that we're moving away from a reforming government into an electioneering government. But you know, you still have Francis Moore doing civil service reform, George Osborne reducing the deficit, Duncan Smith reforming welfare, Theresa May reforming the police. Lots of people will say plenty of reforms still going on. I think most of the reforms uh, that uh, that they've been talking about are through in a legislative way. What we don't know yet is implementation, and that's the problem with the removal of Gove. Gove hasn't gone because he's a bad education secretary. Gove has gone because he's a toxic minister with the public, with teachers, with parents. This is a victory for Linton Crosby over George Osborne, which is unusual. Mm. I'm absolutely convinced that Osborne fought to keep Gove in his place. Instead, he now gets him as his chief whip. Previously, he'd wanted Greg Hands to be his chief whip. Which is incredibly rare. Osborne has always been seen as the octopus in Whitehall and in front of getting his own way. If Linton Crosburn emerging as a more powerful figure, at least in this instance, is quite an event in the government. Yeah, and uh, but uh, Crosby's the man there with the the polling figures, and he he was uh, gave us incredibly unpopular. And I do agree with with Phil because. If there was one minister that epitomized reform, it was Gove. Mm-hmm. And he could say, my work is done, but it's not. Uh, a lot of his the changes on A-levels are going to be done in two batches. I can see the unions over the next year getting on to this minister who until today was unknown and and really pushing hard for all the, all the A-level reforms to be put over into the next But, but Nick, Nick Gibb, a former sort of minister's returned, second act in politics to the education department. He's a Gove supporter. David Laws is still in the education department. Should we be so well, will pessimistic? Laws, will Laws really be able to do that job in the run-up to an election? His mind is will elsewhere. He, yeah. Mm. Will he really be able to carry on the Gove mantle? I don't think so. David Laws have got other things to think about. Phil Collins. One of the things here, Tim, I think, is that they're trying to stretch the policy of a parliament over five years when we're accustomed to doing this over four years. So as a minister, if you have a great big flagship bill at some point in the parliament, it takes a little while to to get it going, and then it takes time to prepare it, and then you bring it to the House, you take it through the House, and then you deal with the aftermath. And that's got a nice rhythm to it, and then you go into electioneering mode. We've got a five-year fixed-term parliament now. We've got this fag-end year, essentially, that nobody knows what to do with. Mm. And I think Phil is absolutely right. We are moving into electioneering. But the real problem you've got with the absence of reforming ministers is what is what you prevent happening in the final year. Can you prevent the backsliding or not? And that's what worries me, Good. is that although the junior ministers are in the right place, as you just said, the Secretary of State really sets the tone. And we just don't know 
whether Nicky Morgan will be of sufficient, either sufficient caliber or sufficient sort of intellectual temperament to do that job. Okay, well, Nicky Morgan, Liz Truss, Esther McVeigh, Phil Webster, quite a few extra women at the top table in government. It was billed, heavily billed, as a reshuffle for women. Has Cameron delivered? And does it matter that he's, if he has delivered? I'm sceptical. I, I, I think what's happened today is, is, has been predicted and it's happened. But we haven't seen many women going into the very top jobs today. Most of the top jobs have remained unchanged. Education is a top job. Education, uh, although how can you brief as Downing Street were at one point that Michael Gove's work was done and then put one of the women in a job <laughs> whose department's work is done. Yeah. But the, the other point there is that if, if it was a real change, why have they made such a fuss about it? Mm. Why did they get Esther McVeigh to walk down Downing Street looking very good um, to be told that... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes, until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. She, her job was the same, but she was going to be able to go along to Cabinet. You don't need to walk into Downing Street to do that. Anna Subri walks down Downing Street to be told that she's moved up one notch in her department. It was for the cameras. It was a successful PR operation. But does it really mean anything? I don't think so. The, the, the proportion of women in the Tory party remains the same today as it was yesterday mm. in, in, the, in, uh, in Parliament. And uh, it's got to be a, a lot more than just watching what happens in one reshuffle. Uh, you- Theresa May, uh, she is a tremendous success in that people now talk about her in terms that don't refer to whether she's a woman or not. And in the, in the case of all the others today, they're there, we think, because they're women. Jill Sherman, would you agree? Liz Truss is the kind of woman who is regarded as one of the absolutely most outstanding members of the new intake, regardless of her, of her gender. Are you a little bit more positive than Phil, or are you, you, you share the cynicism? I slightly share the cynicism. I think it is a bit of tokenism, really. My understanding is that a lot of the women promoted are untried and untested, and Liz Truss in particular although she had a very good track record on the back benches, didn't prove to be a very successful children's minister, as far as I understand. You know, we've, we've put in uh, Nicky Morgan as education secretary, and she's not really proven either at that level. Mm. And I think there is, you know, some of us think, well, it's a bit like the sort of the Ruth Kelly and the Esther Morris. You know, they were brought in to very high jobs, both education secretaries, and neither of them were very good at it. Um, Estelle, you know, actually saying she wasn't very good at it and stepping down. And I think there is a feeling that this is just because 
David Cameron says he wants to fill his cabinet with women, feels he has to. And, you know, these women are unproven at the moment. I mean, I hope they'll do very well, obviously, but I'm a little bit sceptical. Phil Collins, can I ask you a slightly different question? We're all focused on the the women question. For me, I've always been much more worried that the Tories' problem is a rich toffs problem. And actually, there's a few people, Greg Clark, son of a milkman, Stephen Crabb, council house boy, son of a single mum, has just become Welsh Secretary, Greg Clark's become universities. There's a few other people like that, not from traditional, privately educated, David Cameron, George Oswald back. And they've made it. That might be a bigger thing in the in the years to come. It'll have a bigger impact on Tory fortunes and reputation. Yeah, yes, I agree. I'm going to return your compliment of earlier and say I agree with everything you've just said. <laughs> you very helpfully included my answer in your question. Um, <laughs> I, do, I, I do that sometimes. Yeah. I, I, I absolutely agree with you that it is a weakness for the Conservative Party and it goes some way to addressing that. And that's a real thing. That's not uh, just window dressing. It is important to have those voices in the Cabinet should speak differently. William Hague in his um, semi-detached job he has before proper retirement in the lecture circuit uh, is going to campaign in northern seats. Now, I have my doubts about whether William Hague is the greatest campaigner in the world. Um, his previous record on that doesn't inspire enormous confidence. He, he, he kept, is he kept a northern pound. voice. We've still got the pound. He, he, we, we still have the <laughs> it pound. Was all, yeah. It was all due to That's that. That's right. It was a, that highly successful campaign. <laughs> but those different voices from different social classes and different types of experience are very important because there is something a bit patronizing about the very idea of a female friendly reshuffle. I mean, if, if it worked, think about it, then it would be male unfriendly and yeah. half the population would be angry about it. <laughs> so it, it doesn't, politics doesn't work as simply as mm. that. I mean, it's a more female cabinet. Whether it's a more female friendly cabinet is a question of policy. It depends mm. what they do. Yeah. And the reason that the Conservative Party have a trouble, trouble with women has been because of the cost of living, essentially, yeah. not because Anna Soubry isn't sufficiently high in the pecking order in the Defence Department because nobody knows anything about that. So that's a substantive question about the Conservatives' relationship with women. But what way you can do something about your perception in the country is to have more different voices around the Cabinet table. And I think Greg Clark and Stephen Crabb start to address that. I don't think they've got anywhere near enough. Hmm. I think the backroom team in Number 10, which people don't know, but they're the voices talking in the Prime Minister's ear, are far too monochrome People like still. Linton Crosby who got Michael Gove moved. Well, Michael Linton Crosby is an exception to that room, in fact, as a sort of very straight-talking Australian. He is a, a different sort of voice. I'm thinking of the Downing Street operatives who uniformly came from the same house at the same school in the same year, and I exaggerate only slightly, that you don't have that diversity around the Prime Minister. And if you get a bit more around the Cabinet table, that has to be a good thing. You could have mentioned Mike Penning, of course, ex-fireman, yeah. uh, policing minister. It's another one, another one to fall in that category. Yeah. Okay. Well, Phil Webster, let me come to you for the, the third and final topic. I think perhaps the most important policy implication of the reshuffle is a movement in a Eurosceptic direction. And my exhibit A would be Philip Hammond, a foreign secretary who has publicly countenanced the idea of leaving the European Union. We haven't had that before. As, as far as I know. And exhibit B would be the departure of Dominic Grieve, someone who resisted the whole idea of reforming human rights laws, but he's now gone, which gives Chris Grayling and Theresa May the opportunity to put in the next Tory manifesto, leaving the ECHR potentially and putting in some kind of British Bill of Rights. I think Owen Paterson's departure 
aside, I think he's replaced a little bit like for like on Europe with Liz Truss. I think the Conservative Party has just moved in a significant Eurosceptic direction. I think it's a part of the ratchet effect where it's happening year after year. It's, it's continuing. Do you think it will... Do you agree? And if you do agree, is it, is it a Euroscepticism that will last or is this just election eve? I'm afraid I agree. I hate to agree with you <laughs> totally on that. Uh, and of course, you We're could have mentioned... You could have mentioned... Uh, you could have mentioned... podcast on your own, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> you could have mentioned... What a good um, idea. You could have, could have mentioned Ken Clark. But I, yeah. what I would say about all this is that I think it's the most dangerous aspect of the reshuffle from Cameron's point of view because putting somebody into Foreign Secretary, who is known to believe that he would rather see Britain outside, certainly under current circumstances, is that going to make it any more likely that we're going to get our way in the future negotiations on the EU? Doesn't it I, mean doubt, though, doesn't I doubt it, it. Doesn't it mean, though, that when he goes to Brussels and he's sat with other foreign ministers, you know, if you go into any negotiations and say, we'll stay part of this club, whatever you do, that's not much of a negotiating position. If you now have a foreign secretary who says, if I'm not satisfied with this deal, I will not be willing to recommend it to the British people. That increases no, your... Well, I disagree with it? you there. Yeah. I, I'm glad to say I disagree. I, I think, <laughs> I think uh, Haig, had he stayed on, would have been far more likely to get a better deal from Europe than Hammond is going to, going to get. And because I think he the, knew the I, other European I think, leader? Or I, think, or I think he's respected. Yeah. And I think that helps. I think the... And Hammond has to win the respect of the, of the people he's going to be talking to all the time. Um, Phil, you don't think Hamels will actually be doing the negotiation, do you? I mean, surely what this means is that Cameron and Osborne will have to be their own foreign secretary. They will have to do that negotiation. And Hammond will no more do that than Jack Straw ran the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. It will become a prime ministerial burden yeah. for exactly the reasons you gave, which is to have a foreign secretary who's not on your inner team, who doesn't share your essential objective, and I'm taking Cameron's objective to keep Britain in the EU on a reformed basis, means he has to do it himself, essentially. Because the rumour, um, Phil Collins, is is that George Osborne wants to be foreign secretary. Perhaps Phil Hammond is only there for a, for a year. Perhaps they will job swap if the Tories mm. are returned to, to power and George Osborne will be the guy who leads renegotiations. I can see the logic in that and I can see the case. It's, a, this, it's really funny how this government is becoming a mirror of the Blair government, only it's all happening quicker because the Blair government got to this point when Brown might have moved to foreign secretary and they fell out irretrievably and the prime minister was gone within two years in two. 2005 at the beginning of the third term, all of that is going to happen at the start of the Conservative second term. So Osborne may well go to the Foreign Secretary. My own view is he probably should. And that would be a big thing if he were to pull that off in Tory politics. That would be an enormous thing to do to try also and retrieve the position of his friend David Cameron, who probably will face it's hard to think there won't be a leadership challenge in the next parliament in the Conservative yeah. Party. Jill. Sherman, are you, are you seeing this similar shift in towards Euroscepticism that um, we're all picking up? Or? I think in all the appointments you just talked about, yes. I think the um, the idea of putting up Jonathan Hill as EU Commissioner is, a, is an interesting one because um, I don't suppose the uh, Eurosceptics will be terrifically pleased about that. I don't know exactly what his views are on Europe, but I don't think he's very Eurosceptic. And, of course, he's worked with Ken Clark before as special advisor and work with John Major um, with the Maastricht Rebels. And so I think he'll be, it looks like he's been put in as a sort of skilled negotiator 
could be quite a good thing. He might be able to win round some of our Brussels colleagues in the way that other people won't be able to. And um, obviously, David Cameron didn't want to cause a by-election. That mm, must be the yeah. principal reason he's been chosen. But I think he'll, he'll be an interesting person to watch there. He, he was asked, I think, by the Conservative Home website about mm. a month ago whether he wanted the job. And, and he, he replied, no, 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 no. And of course, he was the minister that famously resigned. And David Cameron didn't notice and kept him as education minister. And he ended up leading the House of Lords. So goodness knows where he's eventually going to end up. Nigel Farage uh, tweeted this morning, who on earth is Jonathan Hill? Um, and that must be the view of some of the people out there that he's going to be uh, going to be working with. But most of the commission are not household names, even in their own household. So, you know, we'll see. You were probably, Jill Sherman, to give you the last word, it's probably not going to help Britain get a big brief having someone who's perhaps not the biggest beast going to Brussels. Perhaps that's correct. But he has got skills in negotiators, so who knows what he might pull off. We'll see. Well, thank you all, Phil, Phil and Jill. I love the sound of Phil, Phil and Jill for joining me for this uh, special podcast. Thanks always to Dave McGuire, producer. Um, if you are a Times subscriber, please go to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central where you can listen to this podcast again, subscribe via iTunes so you never miss a weekly edition. And I'll also post some links there so that you can get some background reading on some of the issues that we have been discussing. Thank you very much for listening. Until next week, goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.